What are we looking at here is a film review podcast. There will be significant spoilers in every episode, so if you haven't seen the movies I'm discussing, please do pause here and go see them before continuing. I talk about all kinds of films and all kinds of topics, so some content may not appeal to you. You can check out the content warnings in the show notes and decide if this episode is right for you. What are we looking at here? Hi everybody, welcome to the show. Today we're looking at alien abduction and the abyss, and at how having someone with us at the end is all that really matters. We'll also be spoiling parts of the Star Trek franchise, Equilibrium, and Jurassic Park, so proceed with caution. In Alien Abduction, a found footage movie, we follow a family of five as they drive to Brown Mountain in North Carolina. The found footage premise is that Riley, the 11-year-old boy behind the camera, is autistic, and the camera gives him a sense of comfort and stability. They're a fairly normal family, except that nobody's on edge and everyone's getting along. They camp out, they drive on, they get lost on a mountain road and find a row of deserted cars, they go in a dark tunnel where an alien is waiting, and then they run out of gas. Typical family vacation. We follow the family as best we can with dark, confusing camera angles. We watch them start losing each other. I would say to aliens, but I don't want to spoil the surprise. We follow little Riley up to the point where he finds himself alone in pitch-black woods. His family is gone. His only light is the display from his camera. He was following his sister, but he fell down, and then he couldn't find her anymore. He sits and turns the camera around and tells it, I don't know where I am. I'm lost. I'm scared. And he's crying pretty real tears, and he's eleven, and it's really easy to put yourself in his place. Because being alone in dark woods is scary whether there are aliens or not. And then something grabs him. And it's his sister. She grabs him and holds him in her arms. And then the rest of the horror movie happens, and horror movies typically end with the bad guy winning, so that's what happens. But even in the weirdly vague images, with weirdly vague sounds, that may mean Riley and his sister were not killed but captured, a worse fate, almost anyone would argue, especially for a confused eleven-year-old, somehow it doesn't seem like a bad ending. Because when the worst occurs, whatever that turns out to be, Riley is with his sister, and she has him in her arms. The scariest part of this movie about aliens abducting people isn't the part where it's loud, or when bright lights come down, or when some people are abducted in a painful, not-suitable-for-return manner. The scariest part is when we put ourselves in the place of a little kid lost in the night woods, and we're relieved beyond words when he finds his sister. We're relieved because we remember being kids and being scared. And we're relieved because we remember being grown-ups and being scared. 
We appreciate the value of having someone with us when we're frightened or lost or confused. We appreciate it so much that in The Last of the Mohicans we don't even question that Cora will stay with her sister. And we know that the hardest thing Nathaniel has ever had to do is leave the girls behind even when it's for the girls' safety. We appreciate it so much that it doesn't even seem strange in the 300 for dying men to crawl toward one another with their last breaths to offer words of affection and friendship. We don't want to think that they're dying alone. The entire story arcs of Apocalypto and 28 Days Later involve reuniting the main characters with one another. The thought of being separated is frightening enough that it's almost more of a big bad than the actual big bads. And in Star Trek V, when Captain Kirk says he's always known he would die alone, we feel poignant about that. Until generations, when Kirk dies with someone beside him. Is he alone? He very much is, in a way. He's separated by decades from anyone he's ever known. But in the way that made us feel poignant, he isn't alone. He's with Captain Picard. So we're still sad about his death. But we don't feel as sorry for him as we did when we imagined that he would die all by himself. We don't like it when characters we like die all by themselves. It bothers us so much that we rate whether characters are good guys or bad guys on whether or not they would let someone die alone. In Equilibrium, we understand John Preston's newfound sadness over the death of his wife, not just that she's gone but that he didn't even have feelings about it at the time. The first thing he recognizes as a feeling once he stops taking the prosium isn't just grief for his wife, but the incredible guilt of knowing that he didn't even tell her goodbye, or cry, or look into her eyes as she's incinerated. Not being with her when she died is so horrible a thing to have done, or not done in this case, that we know that prosium is not a good answer to human problems, that it's somehow taking humanity away rather than making it better, that for this reason more than any other, John needs to fight the system and reclaim his emotions. He races to the incinerator to stop Mary O'Brien's execution, and because he's too late, he feels like a failure. But I don't think the audience particularly sees it as a failure. Sure, he wasn't able to stop the execution but it seems unlikely that they would have stopped it for him even if he had arrived sooner. What's more important to us is that unlike the situation with his wife, John has shown up to be with Mary. She doesn't die alone. His metaphorical journey back to humanity is symbolized not by his ability to feel, because he's been having feelings for a goodly chunk of the movie by then, but by his ability to be with someone when they die to try to make up in some way for what he had failed to do for his wife. And what's his reward for being with Mary at the end of her life? For him to be there with her is so important that the story allows him to topple the entire system and set the people free from their manipulative overlords. It's that important. It's so important that it trumps the horror ending of alien abduction. Riley and his sister are together in the end. So even though the aliens have technically won, we don't feel nearly as bleak about the ending as we would have if Riley had been taken alone. It's so important that when the lawyer in Jurassic Park leaves the children in the car and runs away, he is immediately eaten by a dinosaur 
The only mention of him other than to identify his body parts is for the little girl to remind the audience, he left us. He left us. And we know that Dr. Grant is the good guy because even though he has made it clear that he doesn't even like children, he tells the little girl, but that's not what I'm going to do. And he is true to his word. Be there for people so they don't die alone? Become the hero of the post-apocalyptic world. Leave people to die by themselves, scared and crying? Get eaten by a dinosaur. Let's turn our attention to The Abyss, a movie set in an underwater platform. You might be thinking of the scene where the main character, Bud, stays with his ex-wife, Lindsay, even though she's drowning. He drags her back to the rig and resuscitates her. You know, yeah, of course, this is exactly the sort of thing we're talking about here. Bud doesn't let her die alone. He doesn't let her die at all. And later, when he's diving to the bottom of the trench by himself in the dark, Lindsay's voice is with him the entire time, making sure he knows that he isn't really alone. But these aren't the scenes I want to look at today. I want to look at the showdown with Lieutenant Coffey. Lieutenant Coffey develops pressure sickness, and coupled with his high-stakes military mandate and with being cut off by a storm from communicating with the surface world, he's under an extraordinary amount of, well, pressure, and he buckles under the weight of it. We don't hate him for it. It's clear that he's experiencing an actual physiological reaction beyond his control. But he's obviously going to be a problem. He's unlikely to trust a bunch of aliens, for instance, or to promote talking to them without suitable protection from an unknown species with unclear intentions. But whether the aliens are good or bad, it's probably not the best course of action to hit them with a nuclear device. So when Coffee steals one of the diving pods to drop said nuke on said aliens, Bud and Lindsay follow him in another pod. They chase each other around what seems to be the ocean floor, each of them ramming the other's pod and grabbing at the other pod with the extendable machine arms. Coffee is determined. He's pretty irrational by this point, losing it more every second. He sees Lindsay as a distinct threat to his mission, and he sees his mission as necessary for the very survival of the planet. He's super motivated. But Lindsay isn't working under the stressors of pressure sickness, and she's much more familiar with the pods and with the grabby arms. So she gains the upper hand and spins Coffee's pod out of control. They're both in pods with clear glass bubbles at the front. They can see each other clearly as the pods slam into each other, and they all end up teetering on the edge of the trench shelf with their front windows pretty much touching. It turns out they're not really on the ocean floor at all, that this trench goes down too far to see the bottom, that the pressure in the trench will be far, far too great for the pods to withstand. Coffee's pod is closer to the edge, and as he and Bud and Lindsay stare at each other through the glass, Coffee's pod starts to slide away from Bud and Lindsay's pod. By this point, all the grabby arms are out of commission because they weren't really designed for open combat. Neither pod engine is working because, again, they weren't designed for underwater demolition derby. When Coffee's pod starts to slide into the trench, all three people stop thinking whatever it was they were thinking until then, and are suddenly painfully aware that Coffee's about to fall to a certain death. They were all so focused only seconds before on annihilating one another. 
In his mental state, Coffee was filled with fear and panic, and therefore anger against people he thought were going to put the whole world in jeopardy. Bud and Lindsay were afraid and panicked, because nuking alien guests is never the best way to make friends. And of course, Coffee's attack on their pod triggered all kinds of fight-or-flight feelings in them. Basically, they were enemies, each willing to end the other's life for the greater good, each fighting for their own lives with everything they had. But when Coffee's pod starts sliding, and they hear the groaning of the metal, for a moment time stops. Coffee's anger dissolves as realization washes over his face. His pod slides free of the other pod and jerks backwards a few feet into the trench. Coffee's hand reaches out instinctively to the glass. Lindsay's hand does, too. Even though no one can do anything to stop what's happening, they both reach out for each other, placing their hands flat on the glass that separates them in an attempt to connect with one another. Coffee's pod just keeps sliding, until he falls into the inky blackness of the potentially bottomless trench, and his hand doesn't leave the window. Neither does Lindsay's. She and Coffee look at each other with their hands on the glass until he falls too far into the dark for her to see him anymore. We see him, alone in his pod, falling down backwards so that he's looking up toward the sky. He can't save himself. The pod buckles under the increasing pressure. The glass bubble begins to crack. He yells out, but only the audience can hear him. And then the pod implodes and Coffee's dead. A moment before, we, like Bud and Lindsay, saw him as a threat, as an irrational element that needed to be eliminated. We knew it wasn't his fault, he was sick, but we also knew he had to be stopped, and that it might mean killing him. We were okay with that because, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, but suddenly we don't want him to die. We're not okay with it anymore. When we hear the metal groaning and see the pod slipping over the ledge, we realize, too, that something inescapable is about to happen. When we see him reach out to Lindsay, he's also reaching out to us, and we can't save him any more than she can. He falls into the trench and is crushed to death within seconds. He dies alone, and the last connection he had with anyone was Lindsay's hand on the window, reaching out for his. He knew. Bud and Lindsay knew. We knew. There was no way to save Coffee from dying. Their hands couldn't even touch. But they reached for each other anyway. Because even with no hope of rescue, or maybe precisely because there was no hope of rescue, Lindsay's hand reaching out to him was the last thing he would see. And that was the most important part. It must be because her hand reached out for him without thinking. It was just instinctive. It was just what humans do. We don't like it when people die alone. We don't want to die alone. We want some witness to our passing. We want some recognition that we were alive and now will be missed. We want a hand to hold, someone who's with us when we're scared even if all it means is that we're scared together. Life can be so hard, and we have to make choices, both metaphorical and literal, to either eat or be eaten, kill or be killed, 
But in the end, at the end, we don't want to face the final unknown by ourselves. We want to know that we can reach out and that someone will be reaching back. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word. If you want to check out my other content, you can visit my website at www.smrcooper.com. I hope you have a good week and that things go your way. And if you get a chance, watch a movie.